Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Neil Lewis Jr. to the show. Dr. Lewis is an Associate Professor of Communication and Social Behavior at Cornell University and Associate Professor of Communication Research in Medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. Dr. Lewis is a behavioral scientist who studies how social interventions and policies can motivate behavioral changes to promote equitable outcomes in society. He completed his doctorate in social psychology from the University of Michigan. He received the Early Career Scholar Award from the International Communication Association, the Janet Taylor Spence Award for Transformative Early Career Contributions from the Association of Psychological Science, and Cornell's Research and Extension Award for Outstanding Accomplishments in Science and Public Policy. Today, we will learn more about his academic and professional journey, more about his dual appointment, and hear his advice for those interested in the field of social psychology. Dr. Lewis, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us. One of the fun things, as I was telling you before we started recording for me, is to be able to do some of the research and look at your journey. And um, uh, even though I've had other social psychologists on here on the podcast, yours is a very unique journey as well. So you started off your bachelor's uh, you received your bachelor's degree in economics at Cornell University. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more about your undergraduate experiences and when you first became interested in psychology. Yeah, I mean, um, undergrad was interesting and I like explored a lot of things during that time. Um, you know, I studied economics um, in part because I really enjoyed um, econ as a subject in high school. I had a great um, high school economics teacher um, who really sparked that interest um, in economics. But I also thought it was a practical degree to get. You know, I wanted to be employable at the end of my undergraduate <laughs> uh, journey. Um, and so that was always something in the back of my mind. Um, but the most interesting part of economics for me um, were the parts that were fundamentally psychological. Right. So you can take something as fundamental as like, how does our monetary system work? Like, you know, um, that we we are all using money um, every day. Like, how does that work? And I remember um, there's this demonstration in one of my classes um, where one of the professors took out both a $20 bill and the $1 bill and ripped both of them in half. And of course, then, like, you know, a student sitting in the class, you know, we gasped at this demonstration, but we were far more upset about the $20 bill being ripped than the $1 bill. Um, and so she asked us to reflect on our reaction. You know, why were we so much uh, more upset um, about the 20 being ripped than the one being ripped? Um, they're both just pieces of paper with printed on the same kind of ink and so on. But why was one uh, worth so much more to us um, than the other when they're made of the same thing? And the answer was, well, we believe that one is worth more uh, than the other, um, that as long as we share that collective belief, then that really becomes a uh, part of the reality. And so, you know, that was a really um, interesting um, insight to me. And the more I studied economics, the more I kept thinking about how much of these systems that govern our social world depend on people's beliefs in those systems. Um, and of course, the discipline that was really established to study belief systems and other thoughts, behaviors is psychology. And so that's one of the reasons I ended up um, pivoting from economics to psychology. 
Well, that's actually an interesting story and it's crucial. And I think it is uh, definitely important, the belief system and and the collective belief. So it's not only mm -hmm. yours, yours right. doesn't override everybody else's just because yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's that collective belief. So that's interesting. Yeah. You then attended, as I mentioned in my intro, University of Michigan for your doctorate. You earned mm -hmm. your PhD in social psychology. Now, there are many different schools in Michigan back in the time and even more today that mm -hmm. offer graduate degrees in psychology. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, why did you decide on the University of Michigan to uh, work on your uh, psychology degree? Yeah, so um, Michigan, um, at the time that I was there, um, or at the time that I was applying to graduate school, um, had this cluster of faculty who um, all like were really focused on and conducted intervention research, right? And that's something that I was um, very um, interested in. Um, you know, I wanted to um, go to graduate school, not just um, to learn about psychological processes and social issues. Um, I also wanted to use my knowledge uh, to develop um, some interventions that could hopefully do some good in the world. Um, and Michigan uh, was a place uh, to learn to do that. And so um, they just had a lot of faculty doing um, work in education, some in health, some in the environment. And so I was just really interested um, in being part of that and learning how to do that kind of work. Okay. All right. And in, in, in passing, when in, in earning your PhD, you also earned a Master of Science in Social Psychology as well. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. whenever people look at people's uh, CVs or, or VITAs, they look mm -hmm. at the undergrad and then they see the PhD and going, oh, well, how did you go there? And so you actually earn it in passing when in most cases when you have that. So yeah. um, what are some of the key skills or qualities that you believe are important for psychology students to aspire to work for and toward in that field of social psychology? Anything that that kind of stems from your experience and or belief now that you've been teaching? Yeah, I mean, there are two things that come to mind a lot. Um, one is curiosity, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. that, you know, this is a field that's really trying to understand some really complex interactions um, between people and uh, the environments that they're in. And um, just being curious about that um, is really important. Um, but the other part of that is being humble. <laughs> uh, okay. We are constantly um uh, surprised by the ways that people uh, believe um, and uh, behave in the world. Um, and so, um, you know, there are all these moments where I'm like, you know, we see people become super confident about, oh, yeah, people are definitely going to behave in this way. And then they don't. Uh, <laughs> um, it makes us really sort of uh, question what we know. And I think that's important. Uh, it keeps the science moving forward. Um, and so staying sort of curious about what's happening around you um, and being humble about the fact that you might be wrong um, is an important thing to be successful in this field. Well, the other thing too, if you don't mind, I'll add something. When I was going through grad school as well, you actually sometimes learn very important things when your research doesn't go the way it's planned because oh, yeah, it opens up the doors. It opens up the doors for, oh my gosh, I if, if you say, oh, I'm going to research A, B, and C, and everybody's saying, well, 
that's obvious. Come on. You know, <laughs> and then you actually look at the look at it empirically and yeah. then you find out that it's just the opposite. And you're going, well, why is that? And then that opens up more doors. So that's how you extend research further is, is by doing that, uh, that research to find out yes or no, or it's a combination of both under certain circumstances. So exactly. Uh, <laughs> I remember I remember doing my first research project and it didn't go the way that I had predicted. And I thought, oh, my advisor and my teacher are just going to think, you you are a failure you didn't even get it. <laughs> but it, it was just the opposite you know we uncovered something new so uh exactly i, I mean yeah. <laughs> so many of those meetings um with students um you know um, as you mentioned students will go around a study and then it's like you know something might not work the way that we thought it was and and so that's in many ways some of the most interesting uh yeah. things were like oh i wonder what happened there and then you're right. digging in uh, data, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, then you think you might um, have some new insight. That, well, let's go run another study, um, see if this new thing that new the way that we're thinking about it is um, aligned or right. not. Um, and so that's how you keep the learning going. So. Definitely, definitely. So in hindsight, think back to the process related to searching for graduate schools and programs. Mm -hmm. And uh, is there anything that you would do different in terms of that process? now that you look at it, uh, you know, in hindsight? So before I say anything else, I, I want to make sure uh, listeners understand one concept that's relevant to all this sort of advice giving. Okay. Uh, and that's this concept of survivorship bias, right? Okay. Um, I think that's super important to talk about here because, um, you know, I'm someone who sort of made it through many of uh, these filters. Um, and that's just important uh, to um, contextualize with the device. So I, it's hard for me to say, oh, well, I, um, you know, maybe would have done this or that differently. I, I, there's not a lot that's like jumping out, but that's in part because it did work out for me. Right. Okay. Um, yep. And so I think that's um, an important piece here with some of the advice giving, like, you know, there's lots of great advice out there on doing your homework and searching for, um, um, looking through the different programs about, who's there, what are they doing, and so on. Um, and that's important to do. Um, but students should also, people who are like going to be applying to this program should also know there are a lot of things that are also outside of your control. Um, I, I think one of the things I see every year is, um, you know, people get very upset if like they don't get into a program. They're like, what else could I have done? And you can do everything you can. And sometimes there are other um, things um, and the process that you might just not know about uh, that still affect the outcome. So I think that's an important uh, piece to consider too. Yeah. And, and to your point, there's a lot of stuff that's out of your control and, you know, there might've been, you know, maybe the program is only accepting four or five students or three students yeah. and you have 50 or a hundred students applying. And let's say that one of the students met one of the uh, people on the committee who are making the decision mm -hmm. and they already kind of, you know, know that I'm going to, I'm going to pick this student. So that's already mm -hmm. one out of the four or five already gone. Yeah. And so, yeah, don't take it too seriously. Just keep working at it and then apply for more. And another way to kind of ask this is, is there anything that you wish you knew back then when you were deciding on which school or program to attend for uh, mm -hmm. your graduate degree? that you you wish that you could you know share that advice with anybody else right now you know uh you yeah. can only talk to your experience like you said uh, yeah. and 
Um, but is there anything else that you tell your students now who are, you know, uh, considering to go on for their uh, graduate uh, degrees and or PhD? So, yeah, I mean, I think um, it's really important to have a sense of what you want to do afterwards um, mm -hmm. in order to choose the right program. Um, one of the things that's kind of funny about um, graduate programs is, you know, you have the same degree, uh, quote unquote, uh, but the programs are actually very different, right? So um, depending on who is there at the time, um, programs have very different specialties that they can train you for. So you, um, you want to go to the kind of program that can train you for the things that you want to do um, in the sectors in which you want to do that thing, right? So some programs, like their focus um, is like, really training future academics. Um, you know, you don't want to go into academia, maybe that's not uh, the, the best thing, right? If um, other um, programs have really great track records of training people who want to go into government or um, different sectors of industry. Um, so knowing something about what you want to do can help um, you pick the right program um, that can prepare you for whatever that thing is. So that's um, something I think is super important. I love that advice. The other thing that I'd add to that is, you know, back in the day you had PhD. Now you have PhD and PsyD. And mm -hmm. so you can go that route. And uh, typically the PsyD is for somebody who uh, doesn't want to stay in the academic world, but there are mm -hmm. certain cases where you do see somebody with a PsyD who is at a university mm -hmm. uh, and vice versa. So that, you know, they're, they're, they're crossing the boundary, so to speak a little bit, but um one other thing to keep in mind, like you said, is what do you want to do after you receive your graduate degree or degrees? And yeah. if it is clinical, if it is staying in the academic world, academia, or if it's starting your own business, your practice, anything like that, or working for government. I mean, a lot of people think it's either when I get my psychology degree in whatever branch or field, I got to stay in the academic world or I have to start my own practice. No, yeah. there's so many more things that you can do with a, a doctorate or a, a master's degree in psychology as well. So just wanted to point that out for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, the like one of the things that's um, really great and beautiful about this field is that um, it does prepare you for many different options. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the sort of flip side of that is you can end up in a choice overload problem situation where it's like, because you can do so many things, like which thing should you do? Um, and that's something you have to answer for yourself. And so, you know, that kind of leads me to another question that I usually ask is how did you find or determine, hey, we have that whole umbrella of psychology and then you have all the branches or all the different ways that you could actually study psychology mm -hmm. and focus on. So how did you end up focusing on social psychology? Yeah, so that's, um, you know, in, if we take a step back and re revisit um, undergrad for a second, so I talked about the journey through economics, but um, I also did research um, in sociology. Um, so I was in a sociology lab, that's where I got um, my sort of feet wet um, in research. Um, and I was working with a social psychologist, but from the sociological tradition. So there's social psychology in both psychology departments and in sociology departments. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I was applying to graduate school, I applied to social psych programs in both um, fields, both in sociology um, and psychology. And it's because I was really interested um, in sort of 
um, this way of thinking about people and the environments around them um, and like how understanding those links can help you come up with solutions, right? So I've always been intervention focused. Um, that was like a core thing. Um, you know, when I started out, I was most interested in education interventions that's broadened to health and environment and um, other things um, too. But I really wanted programs that could train me to do that, right? Um, okay. And so, and from that perspective of really thinking about the person and um, in the context that they're in. So that's what really drew me to um, social psych. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing. What's interesting is you started uh, at Cornell with your undergraduate in economics, and then you left when a couple states over, I think. I'm not very good <laughs> at geography, but yeah, I think you went to the West at any rate, uh, yes. to uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And then eventually you returned to Cornell. So you're now at Cornell as well. You returned mm -hmm. to Cornell after receiving your doctorate. You mm -hmm. were an assistant professor for just over six years. And as we were discussing just before we started, congratulations, you just got promoted to associate professor. So thank congratulations <laughs> on that. When you look back at uh, the application process for your first appointment mm -hmm. as an assistant professor, why did you decide on Cornell University? And did you have other choices? And, and if so, why did you decide to go with Cornell? Yeah, um, I um, had a couple of options. Uh, I was fortunate to, you know, I applied to, I think, 15 schools total um, and um was fortunate to have um, a good run on the job market that year and had some good offers to choose from but um, I ended up choosing Cornell because it was the best fit um, of the offers that were on the table right so um, the department was really excited about the work um, that I wanted to do um, really um, open to supporting the various ways that I wanted to do that work um, you know um, one of the things that's interesting in social psych it, uh, you know it, it applies to other areas as well but um, for a long time, there's this sort of divide between basic research and applied research. Um, and, you know, there are some departments that are more excited about the basic research and not as excited about the applied research. Um, and so that was a tension with some of the offers. They're like, yeah, well, you like, you like your basic social cognition research, but that applied stuff, maybe after tenure, you can do that. And I was like, well... I, it's important to me to do both of those things. Right. Um, and uh, Cornell was like, yes, come do all of it. We were excited about all of it. So it was a really great fit. Um, and so that's why I ended up uh, taking the job here. Well, that's great. Good yes. explanation as to why as well. It always comes down to it's a good fit. It, it yeah. worked out for me. It's a good fit because of A, B, and C. So yeah. I know a lot of our listeners are going to ask a little bit more about this aspect. So because you recently moved from assistant professor to associate mm -hmm. professor, Kind of share with us what were some of the most challenging aspects of moving and earning that right to go ahead and uh, move from assistant to associate. Yeah, so um, this is another thing that's going to, you know, um, the caveat of the process looks very different at different kinds of places and the like. But, you know, here, um, Cornell is a research one university, so like, uh, research is king basically um and so you do have to um uh, produce um uh like recognizable like um uh, body of research that's like really impactful in your field um and so you know setting up it's a rel it's also a relatively short window right so um you know you said six years from assistant to uh to associate but it's really five years because you submit your materials at the end of year five. Uh, and so you've got five years to uh, generate this body of work uh, that is then 
um, you know, recognized by your peers in the field. Uh, so you, you start your job, you've got to set up your lab, recruit students, um, do all of these things to like really get that work going while you're also teaching classes um, and doing service both for the university and for the broader field. Like it's a lot of different things. Uh, one of the things I don't think people necessarily recognize um, until you're in the role is just how multifaceted the job is, right? You go to a graduate program and you become an expert in uh, the thing you're going to study. Um, and most of that program is oriented around just doing that thing. So in the case of a PhD in social psychology, you're uh, getting training to do research in social psychology. And then you take the job as a professor and that's part of your job is doing research, but a lot of it is also teaching and it being, uh, you know, administrative tasks of running a lab and, um, you know, reviewing for journals and um, editing journals and, and all these other things that come up. And so it becomes um, a pretty um, big job uh, very quickly. And so you have to figure out how to manage all of that uh, to get to uh, the point of tenure. And I'm glad that you mentioned that. One of my recent uh, interviews was some, was somebody who just finished grad school, got her first professorship. And then a couple things that stuck out to her was, you know, I, I basically have five years you know, to, mm -hmm. to prove my tenure and, yeah. and I have to do all this other stuff. And the other thing that I remember from that interview was um, she found it challenging to herself to actually, as a grad student, you can free flow your speech. You can talk about anything, but now that you are in this um, position, you almost have to be aware of your position as an assistant professor and, and, you, you don't have as much free speech as you used to have because people are looking to you as an authority. And so uh, that's another aspect to kind of consider when you become a, uh, a professor and, and you, uh, did you get tenure during this move or do you have to still earn that tenureship? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a question for you. Did oh, you sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, my um, promotion to associate is with tenure. Um, okay. So, good. Um, so there, yeah, there are that maybe that's another thing we should talk through, um, is that depending on the place, um, mm -hmm. the promotion, um, and tenure decision is either coupled or it's not. So here it is when you are promoted to associate professor, you also, um, are tenured. There are other places where, um, you're promoted to associate professor, but you don't get tenure until full. Um, right, but right. those, these are questions to ask, um, during the interview processes, like, what does it look like here? What does it mean? So. Um, yeah, in my case, um, associate came with tenure. That's great. Congratulations. Thank I you. mentioned earlier that you have dual appointments. So you're an associate professor of communication and social behavior in the Department of Communication. And you're also an associate professor of communication research and medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine. So tell us a little bit more about your dual appointments and how you found them. And I should mention that even though both of these are from Cornell, one is at Ithaca and the <laughs> other one is at New York. So just yeah. keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, Cornell um, is a geographically distributed place. Um, so main campus is in um, Ithaca, New York, but our medical school is in uh, New York City, four hours away. Um, right. And I work in both places. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so the reason for the dual appointments um, in this case is um, I do a lot of health research, right? So including research on um, how the ways that health clinics and health systems communicate information to patients affects the health behaviors um, that the patients engage in um, and health outcomes. And um, so 
the dual appointment in that case really um, helps me to be situated in both of the intellectual environments that I need to be in, um, in order to do that kind of work well, right? So in the Department of Communication, um, I'm surrounded by communication scholars and other social scientists who think about communication processes, right? Um, and in um, my med school division, all of my colleagues there are medical doctors, right? Um, who have to put these processes into practice. And so mm -hmm. being uh, in both worlds really allows me to get um, the broader set of perspectives that I need to have on health issues. And that improves my ability to study those issues well. Okay. I know that most of your research or the research that I'm seeing, especially on, you know, if you go to uh, uh, Google Scholar as well as your own personal page, uh, revolves around issues of inequality and motivation. Uh, mm -hmm. In actuality, you know, one of your your labs, uh, your lab is actually called Motivation and Goal Pursuit Lab. And so yep. we see where that motivation comes in. How do you believe these two concepts, inequality and motivation, intersect and impact ind individuals' psychological well-being? Yeah. Um, so... Uh, to explain how I got to studying these things and the links between them, I think it's important to know um, some more background information about me. Um, and that is, I'm an immigrant, right? So I was born in Jamaica, um, and then I came to the U.S. Um, as a kid. And I mentioned that because American society um, has fascinated and in some ways baffled me for most of my life. Uh, you know, we have these narratives here about, you know, how we need to improve people's motivation to get them to work hard, that uh, motivation and hard work are the paths to success. And to be clear, those things are definitely important. But some of the most motivated um, and hardest working people I've met are low income people. Uh, right. And so I've always wondered, like, why is it that some people's motivation seems to pay off? Right. That is when they work hard, um, they do seem uh, to get the fruits of their labor. Um, but when other people work really hard, um, they don't seem to get anywhere. Right. And that question over time has led me to study, like, how the larger systems of inequality um, that we live in affect the outcomes of our motivation, um, as well as what we're even motivated to do um, in the first place. And I'll give an, a, like a concrete example of this from the education domain, which is another domain, which is one of the domains um, where I work in a lot. Um, there, we and uh, many other scholars have found that uh, the relationship between motivation, student motivation in school and inequality matters a lot. So um, one of the sort of concrete examples of this is uh, research showing that when uh, low-income students realize just how expensive college is, um, that demotivates them uh, in mm -hmm. school, right? Because they know that even if they work really hard, their families would never be able to afford uh, to send them anyway. So it's sort of pointless uh, to put in um, effort that's not going to be um, uh, rewarded. But you can do interventions then, like uh, teaching about policies like need-based financial aid, and it turns out when you do things like that, it completely changes uh, the way the students interact in school. Um, then um, they start um, working even um, harder um, because now they see a pathway to success. So there's this link between the way we think about ourselves and what um, is possible for us to do, what we're motivated to do, and what the broader world um, sort of uh, teaches us about um, what will happen um, if we act on those motivations. And that link is why I sort of uh, I'm fascinated by that and why we do so much work between uh, those two concepts. Well, I like that explanation. And I did see some of your history regarding that as well. The other thing, I, there's probably many different factors that are out there that uh, impact somebody's motivation. It could be e even the friends, the, the people that mm -hmm. surround you, if they're motivated 
asking you to, to help you and to get you motivated, that makes a huge difference as well versus those that, oh, well, that's too bad, Neil. You can't make it to that. Uh, you, you can't even apply because you don't, mm-hmm. you know, can't even do that. Or Brad, there's no way you're going to get in there because, you know, mm-hmm. of such and such reason. But if you surround yeah. yourself yeah. with those people or you see, like you pointed out, those programs that are designed specifically to help individuals mm-hmm. um, uh, overcome some of those challenges. So, you know, when I, when I, I'm always geared toward and thinking about how can we help students and other psychology students who want to contribute to the field. So here's kind of a follow-up question to the, the issue of inequality and motivation. What advice would you have or give to psychology students who would want to actively contribute to reducing inequality through their future research? Yeah, um, I think what's important um, here is to really study um, these links um, very intentionally, right? Um, So study how different aspects of um, the unequal social systems that we live affect people's thoughts, feelings, behaviors. Um, When you're studying those links, um, then... um, you know, the research that you can reveal some potential um, interventions um, and policies that can make a real difference. And I think that like example I shared before from the education work um, is an example of that, right? That mm-hmm. um, when you realize that, oh, well, the the financial barrier is changing the way that students are thinking about their experience, mm-hmm. um, then on one hand, you can uh, develop policies um, and you know, very wealthy universities um, have done some of this where it's like, well, we have need-based financial aid. If if money is an issue, then like, let's remove that issue. But then Mm -hmm. it's not just removing the money as issue. You also have to tell people that that's what you're doing. Um, And when you provide that information, then that can start to change the psychological process. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't study uh, these things together, right? If you didn't know, like, what are the things that are on um, students' minds um, that are affecting their decision? Um, um, You can't just assume like, well, they're just unmotivated. Right. Um, if you study those links together, then um, it can sort of reveal um, some potential pathways um, for addressing the inequality. You're exactly right. And in this case, ignorance is not bliss. You need to right. do your research to find out what what is available for you to reach your goal. And, yeah. and you know, there there are organizations out there that help pay the application fee for, mm-hmm. um, you know, some of your uh, applications. There are uh, like you said, needs-based uh, financial aid as well, grants that are available. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to share my screen and show your um, personal website. Website. I actually like it. It's very encompassing. You have a lot of information on here. But uh, uh, you. if you're interested in learning a little bit more about uh, Dr. Neil Lewis Jr., uh, just go to neillewisjr.com and you'll see all of the information about uh, what he is working in, the lab, uh, that sort of stuff. What I wanted to kind of focus on is uh, the ARC, as we talked about, ARC. And so I, I like looking at this. Um, first of all, tell us a little bit more. So this is, you co-direct. Maybe I should step back for a second. I jumped yeah. right into it. So uh, you co-direct Cornell's Action Research Collaborative. So tell us a little bit more about uh, ARC. Yeah, so um, the Action Research Collaborative, um, we can think about as an institutional home for doing the kinds of work that we were just talking about, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it's bringing together researchers who have, you know, their disciplinary expertise, um, community um, organizations and community members um, who their real problems they're trying to solve. 
Um, there are policymakers that we work with as well who um, have to think about these issues from much larger levels. So if you're a state government or your city health department, there are different ways that you um, might think about these issues too. And to find effective solutions, you really need all of those people at the table to figure out like what is the thing, what are the things we should be studying, what are the things we already know, what are the things that can be implemented, and then if we do implement those things, what are the consequences? So to evaluate the effects of what we're doing, and that's um, what ARC exists to do, right? Um, is to really create a space to bring all of those um, people together um, to work on a variety of issues, and so um, so that's what we uh, um, do. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing. And I will share, of course, all the uh, websites uh, once we go live. Yeah. Um, again, another question for students, you know, mm -hmm. for students who are interested in advocating for policy changes that positively influence mental health, what strategies or advice would you recommend for effectively communicating and engaging with policymakers? Because there's, there's a way to communicate in the academic world, and there's a, definitely a different way to communicate with policymakers. So any advice for those who do want to make an impact and have to deal with and, and work toward making some policy changes? Yeah, I, this goes back to the humility point I made earlier in our conversation. Um, to your point on the different ways of communicating, um, academia is sort of oriented towards the, the sage on the stage model of communication. Like, I have the knowledge and I just need to give it to you. <laughs> um, and then once I give it to you, you will know and then you will do all the right things. And that's just not how other contexts work. <laughs> um, <laughs> to be polite about it. Um, and so, um, you know, the engagements with policymakers um, and communities and the like, I think, um, need to start from a more humble place. And I think a simple question you should be asking yourself and you can ask in those um, engagements is how can I help? Right. Mm -hmm. um, there are people with um, real experiences on the ground that uh, may see things that you, from your academic perspective, may not. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that is important information, too, um, that you can bring that information together, um, figure out what is the problem that needs to be addressed, um, how um, have they been thinking about the problem, what have they tried? Um, and you can ask the question, how can I help? And hearing um, what, then really listen. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can hear um, what comes up and that allows you to then figure out, all right, well, what do I actually know that is relevant for this problem? Right. Um, so there's a bunch of research that has been done. You can then uh, more efficiently search for the research that is relevant, mm -hmm. um, come up with potential solutions um, that you can work together to test and then um, evaluate the effects on. And so it's really this um, more collaborative way of engaging um, rather than saying, well, I have the answers and I'm just going to tell you the answers. And if you just do what I say, then everything will be better. That's not effective. Um, and you should not do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very good advice. And, and not only that, but almost ask yourself, why am I asking this question too? What's my overall goal? Not only yeah. how can I help, but be open to how they respond instead of a directive question. How can I help? Oh, I, I can help you this way without even listening to truly right. listening and understanding. I can help you this way because, as you said, I have this knowledge. Well, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> it may not fit specifically with them. So in my intro, I, I talked about some of your awards within the academic world. And so mm -hmm. I didn't mention outside of the uh, of academia, Thinkers 50 and Deloitte identified you as one of the, the top 30 up and coming thinkers 
who ideas will shape management in the coming years due to your contributions uh, in the motivation and diversity and equity and inclusion. You also co-authored one of the newest editions or the newest edition of Social Psychology, 11th edition. So, um, and I, 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 since I'm talking about this, I should uh, also mention you're also a contributing writer at the, the Atlantic. You were uh, an author at uh, Pearson, or still are, I think, at Pearson. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you were also a contributor at 538 as well. And so uh, I'll share my screen again. I want to highlight a couple of websites for you. Number one is here is the newest. So for those of you who are interested in social psychology, I remember going through grad school and, mm -hmm. and having the textbook on interpersonal communication or, you yeah. know, whatever, whatever one you're, you're, whatever field you're in. But here's the newest uh, 11th edition social psychology. It's out there and you'll see this on his website as well. You can also find it on um, Amazon and I'll hide my meeting controls and here it is on Amazon. I'll put this up there as well. And then I wanted to highlight, here's your Thinkers 50 bio. So mm -hmm. you can find out a little bit more about Neil Lewis when you go to thinkers50.com and then look up uh, Neil Lewis. And then the last thing that I wanted to kind of share here is um, you have, I love Google Scholar because you can actually sort it by year. Uh, and then you can see how many people cite certain uh, articles. Uh, and, you know, you can see which one is is trending, if you want to say that <laughs> a little bit more. But it also, I look at this because I look at the area in which you're doing a lot of your research. And mm -hmm. uh, for me, like I said, a lot of your research is very practical. And you mentioned earlier that within the academic world, it's almost like I have this knowledge. And I, I remember when I was in grad school, you also had to deal with the, uh, how should I say politely, um, <laughs> the, the arrogance uh, mm -hmm. almost competition between, hey, I'm studying this. Oh, you are too? Well, now I have to beat my chest and say, well, I, I know more about that topic than you do. And and that doesn't really help. Sure, the friendly competition is good, but it, yeah. it doesn't necessarily help to to move the state of that field and that uh, research forward if you're com you know constantly combating, uh, you know, being competitive with each other. Collaborate. A little bit more then it'll move forward a little bit but outside Absolutely. the academic world um that i also remember and i want your your thoughts on this i know it has changed depending on which uh field you're in which university you're in which department you're in but back in the day it was almost like we were in our own bubble the academic mm -hmm. world and we're doing all this research now i'm seeing more and more outside uh, applied research in whatever field you're in Mm -hmm. And that is benefiting not only the academic or academia, but it's also benefiting local, regional, and national, and even world, you know, um, mm -hmm. being able to apply that. So what are your thoughts on, I, I already know your answer to this, it's kind of a leading question. What are your <laughs> thoughts on the importance of applying the research outside of the academic world? Yeah, I mean, um, I am a very big advocate of this. Um, it's um, not only what I do a lot of, I um, I train uh, students in how to do this too. Um, I, I think we benefit, we all benefit a lot from this. Um, mm -hmm. And when I think about it in my own field, right? So there's, I mentioned earlier the distinction between uh, basic and applied that people sometimes draw in the field. And for me, I don't know if something really is a basic principle of, you know, human behavior and life, unless I see it applied in many places. 
right? Um, if it if it only works here and not there, um, and, and like how basic is it really, right? Um, and so for me, application. Uh, one way of thinking about application is um, it allows me to know um, sort of um, the conditions under which the things that we're setting hold, and that's really important for um, theory generation. The other um, part, though, is I am not interested in just writing papers for other academics, right? Like this research is hard work. It takes a long time. Um, it takes, uh, and some of the work that I do also takes a lot of resources. Um, and the idea that I would do all of that for five people, <laughs> maybe, um, who are just also studying universities to read feels like such a waste sometimes, right? And so I would like the work that um, we do to be useful uh, to people more broadly. Um, you know, if the work that we're doing can um, help a school develop better policies that um, help students, that's a win for me. If we can um, figure out um, how to, you know, the past couple of years, we've been doing a lot of work on vaccination. If we can figure out um, how to increase vaccine uptake um, and, you know, reduce the number people that um, get infected and die from um, a disease, that's a win for me. Um, and so those, and we can learn a lot of things about um, psychological processes um, along the way. And so it, it goes naturally hand in hand to me. So um, yeah, I'm a big fan of um, um, doing research in ways that allow us to get the best of both uh, worlds. Dr. Lewis, what do you love most about your job? Hmm. Um, I really think it is the time that I spend um, advising and mentoring students. Right? That's like the most rewarding uh, part of the job. Like the research is fun. I've been spending a lot of time uh, talking about that. Uh, but my meetings with uh, my graduate students and postdocs, um, thinking about um, the ideas with them, uh, working with them on their own like professional development um, and journeys, like that's the best part of my week. So um, yeah, I really enjoy that. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. At the end of our uh, podcast, we usually ask a few fun questions, and I usually ask this one first. Tell us something unique about yourself. Uh, I don't know if it's unique, but I mentioned the Jamaican thing earlier. So uh, being, uh, yeah, uh, born uh, in Jamaica um, was maybe one of the unique aspects to share. No. I uh, went on my honeymoon in June, just a few months ago, to Jamaica. And so uh -huh. uh, I, I really love the food. I love the, uh, mm -hmm. we were on an all-inclusive resort. I love yep. swimming in the ocean. I loved everything about it. One thing that I have to warn everybody, if you go to Jamaica, the sun just beats on you. Make sure that you protect <laughs> your skin. So just be aware of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is your favorite term, principle, or theory, and why? Um, probably the planning fallacy. <laughs> um, okay. and the reason for that is it's, uh, it's just such a ubiquitous experience, um, and something I'm constantly working to overcome. Uh, but it's just, yeah. Um, yeah. The planning fallacy. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of social psychology? Um, I think so, some of this we've already talked about, but um, really um, the curiosity about um, sort of studying people and their context and the interactions between those things, I, I think is really important. But then also remembering that you can do that um, in many different uh, ways um, and places. And um, 
that that's a, an important feature of this uh, field. I think um, it's important to remember. Okay, one other fun question. If you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? Hmm. That's a tough one. Um, one project. Or go on one trip. <laughs> well, okay, I'll, I'll do the one trip one, I guess, because that's um, easier right now. So um, one place I want to go um, is to New Zealand. Um, and it's it's you can connect it to a project in that I spent most of uh, the pandemic trying to figure out how they managed to do so well. Um, so, you know, it's it's a very beautiful place from what I seen on the internet. I would love to visit uh, for that reason. But also, I'm like, what is it about that society that uh, they were able to figure this out in a way that so many other places, especially in the United States, uh, didn't? So uh, maybe those two things go together. <laughs> okay. All right. Is there anything else, Neil, that you would like to discuss or bring up on this podcast? Uh, no, I think we've covered a lot of ground. So um, thank you for having me. Um, really enjoyed this discussion. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Again, I've enjoyed uh, talking about your journey uh, and, and uh, hearing all the advice that you have for us. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.